Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadge Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, let me reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, but more importantly, we are very good friends. Right, Ben? You know what's even more important than that, Sammy? What? This is our 350th episode. So? what about? Are you going to say the same thing on the 351st episode? No, because it's not as important as the 350th (laughs) episode. Because human beings were born with 10 fingers and toes, and because of that, we count things in units of 10. And there are 52 weeks of the year, so this is roughly the seven-year mark that Sammy and I have been doing this, which I think is pretty intense. (laughs) (laughs) And that doesn't even include all of the episodes that nobody likes, like Star Car Face-Offs and the the bonus episodes that we've done. This is straight up 350 mainline episodes. Uh, I've never done anything in my life 350 times. Are you sure? I'm I'm 349% sure, Sammy. <laughs> so I just wanted to point that out and say how grateful I am to have the opportunity to uh, speak with my very good friend, Sammy, every week. And to have all of you out there who have been listening to us, some of you for that entire time, and who are still interested in hearing what we have to say about the cars, which have really changed <laughs> over the last seven years based on what we first started talking about. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Um if you wanted to see what Ben has been up to, uh, not so in the past seven years, but like recently, you can um, you can listen to what he has to say right now and when he plugs his recent publications. <laughs> uh, you can you can find my work. Um, Was that I, too clumsy for you? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm still climbing through those words. <laughs> I think I'm almost I'm almost at the light though. Uh, you can find my work at Motor Trend at Car and Driver at Inside Hook, and at Haggerty. Um, and you can find my work at autotrader.ca, driving.ca, and Nouveau Magazine. Ben, we've got a really cool enthusiast car to talk about this week. I'm very excited about it, um, and I think you are too, because we've driven them. I mean, I've driven something related to, you know what, why, why am I even bothering do this preamble. Just tell people what you drove. Just build that word wall in front of the car, yeah. and then I'll drive through it like the Kool-Aid man, <laughs> smashing <laughs> bricks everywhere. Uh, I I drove the 2024 Acura Integra Type S sim. The Acura Integra Type S, which is important to discuss, it is different than the Acura Integra A-Spec. Which I liked, which I liked very much. I believe we talked about that, I want to say, early summer last year. Yes, uh, and I drove that one um, recently as well, uh, a manual ver- a manual transmission version of that, and I was like, hey, this is a pretty cool, it's like an upgraded Civic Si, and it's not it's not too much more expensive, and it feels like a little bit more of a button-down kind of car. The Type S, however, Ben, you, um, you seem pretty, you seem like you got a lot to say about this thing. I very much enjoyed my time with this car and that caught me by surprise because I am not a big fan of the Honda Civic Type R that this car is based on and I'm generally not a big front wheel drive performance guy to begin with uh Hmm. the Civic Type I, I I need to establish the last time I drove the Civic Type R was in 2017 I have not driven the current version of it I had it booked earlier last year earlier last year I had it booked last year but it was removed from the fleet because of weather or or something before I could get to it. The reason, though, that I haven't really pushed to drive it in recent years is because I found the Type R to be a very clinical car in the sense that it was very fast and quick, but I never made a connection with it. And generally, if I don't make a connection with a car, I try not to drive it again until there's been a major change because I don't want to speak ill of a vehicle just because I don't quote-unquote get it. You know, right. I, I don't think it's the Type R is a bad car. It's just not for me. So I was really curious to see how I would feel, Sammy, about the Integra Type S, which under the skin is very, very similar to the Civic. Yes, but you haven't driven the latest version of the Civic Type I have R. Not. Have I have not. Yeah. And so also I've done that. I did that, I think, in the fall last year. Um, and I had some pretty positive impressions about it. But I was curious as to see what would what they could improve, right? Yeah, that's a that's a good point because you know we, we we can't talk about the Integra Type S without first talking about the price. In the United States, this retails for fifty one thousand eight hundred dollars, and in Canada, I believe it starts at fifty eight thousand three hundred and ten. So sounds like a deal. 
<laughs> this is a $50,000 compact sedan that is front oh, yeah. wheel drive. That is. I mean, when you, and then it has the bones of a Civic. Has the then bones you of go, a Civic. Then you go, oh, wait a minute. So the Type R is 45000 So oh. you have to ask yourself, is this $6,000 more car than the Honda is? My answer to that is maybe. But before I kind of. <laughs> Before I kind of get the answer to that is perhaps, which is not an answer, man. Come on now. But before I, I justify my maybe, I want to explore a little bit the pricing of okay. the the Integra a little bit more. That fifty one thousand dollars is twenty thousand dollars more than the base Integra. That's that a is, lot of money. That's yeah. a lot of money. But I do think that the difference is justified when you're looking at the base. I I'm not saying I'm not saying the $50,000 is what I would spend on this car, but I do think that there is quite a bit of daylight between uh, an entry-level 1.5-liter turbo Integra and this 320-horsepower, 310-pound-feet of torque type S. Um, For those of you who are Honda fans, you'll notice that's five more horsepower on paper (laughs) than the Type R. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Sammy, you're asking me, what does this give you over the over the Civic Type R? There's Five that more horsepower, yeah, which is meaningless. A thousand dollars per pony, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I don't think that it actually makes a difference in performance because if you're looking at the just the pure numbers in this car, it's about 5.1 seconds to 60 and 13.7 in the quarter mile. Both of those numbers are somewhat slower than what the Type R has to offer. What you do get with the type, Oof. yeah, what you do get with the Type S is more luxury gear, and I, I say luxury. It's really just kind of more comfort features. Like it has heated front seats, their power front seats. I don't think you can get that in the Type R. It has a 16-speaker stereo system, which is like four more speakers than the Type R. But from what I've been told, it sounds a lot better. Um, it has also dual automatic climate control. Not sure if you can get that in the Type R. All of that stuff is standard gear. You don't get the data logging system that the Type R has, but you do get a louder exhaust system because it has one fewer resonator compared to the Civic's exhaust, which seems kind of odd because you'd figure for like the luxury version, they would want it to be quieter, but they've kind of gone in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's bizarre. I also like the idea that one less resonator is also more expensive. <laughs> it's $5,000 per resonator, Sammy. <laughs> $5,000. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, the, versus the the base, I mean, obviously it has the engine, has a different suspension, has a, it's three inches wider, has the fender flares and whatnot, like a semi-wide body look. It's got mm-hmm. that three exhaust tip thing, which I'm not into. I find the rest of the car looks pretty decent. The three exhaust, every What's time I look at three it. three exhaust? I don't, I don't dislike it, but I look at it and I'm like, it just doesn't fit the car. It's kind of feels grafted onto the back. Hmm. Ben, come on. We got to like this. Uh, we got to, we got to fall for odd numbered exhaust, exhaust tips. Why, why do I have to do that? I also you, don't like Because the... you sound so like discriminatory against okay, the well, odd I'm numbers. I'm also going to discriminate against those little lights at the bottom of, what is it? The WRX that has the little light in the middle, the yep. the brake light? Yeah, I'm not into that either. The rally light or whatever you, it looks like? I don't know I don't if that's know a rally what a light. rally light is, but okay. <laughs> if that's what marketing chooses to call it, then... That's right. Uh, some fascinating things, though, but not fascinating, but interesting things about the car. <laughs> wow, you walked that back real Yeah, quick. I had to. I had to. I almost oversold this statistic. But while we're comparing it to the Type R, it's 3,212 pounds, which is mm-hmm. only 29 pounds more than the Civic, Sammy. That's a really reason. Considering, I think Acura is supposed to be more luxury oriented, and luxury gear can sometimes yeah. be more is often more is often heavier than m- mainstream gear, <laughs> regular <laughs> stuff. Um, that that is a twenty nine pounds of Acura badges have been added to this car. Twenty nine pounds of Acura badges It has different stampings for the body. To be fair, a lot of okay. the panels. And wow, it, that's significant. Yeah, and it does have more sound um more sound deadening so i think the panels are a little bit stiffer to try and keep out vibration and the sound deadening obviously to quiet down the cabin the the other important stat related to that 3200 pound curb weight that's considerably lighter than a golf r i believe and also if you were to compare it to i guess like an amg from that price range roughly what is it uh the a gla i guess yeah, do they not make the CLA anymore? Or you don't think the, don't the CLA is worth discussing because no, it's they, not a hatchback? I mean, the CLA would be closer, I guess. You can't get the manual or, transmission. Yeah. 
But uh, it, it is lighter. It doesn't have the all-wheel drive that those vehicles do. So that's helping it out a lot. Um, remember I remember when there was an A-Class? <laughs> I do remember. And an A-Class a- wagon? Or remember something? when there was a B-Class? No, not an AMG at all. No, not an AMG, but it was still around in Canada. The the thing I think that helped me like the Type S more than my Type R experience was I had it in the wintertime. And specifically, I had it during a fairly snowy stretch. And I was doing a test for driving.ca uh, where I was kind of focused on um, the helical front differential, which is a mechanical limited slip that's outfitted to both the Type R and the Type S. And I was just, you know, I was putting together a feature explaining how these systems work, how they're different from like a clutch pack, how they're different from an e-diff. And I was really focusing on the feel of the car in the snow and and how I was able to drive because of the LSD. And so all of this to say, I was sliding around in the snow a lot with this car. And I got- On purpose or? On on purpose. I got to practice some of the fun left foot braking stuff that I learned at the Team O'Neill Rally School, which I don't often get to do because there aren't a lot of cars out there with a limited slip front differential that will allow you to- you know, weight transfer with the left foot on the brake while you're accelerating and then lift off the brake and still pull out of that corner without spinning one wheel, just like an open differential would. Yeah. So it was fun to do that. And I enjoyed it. And the car was very responsive. And if it ever understeered, all I had to do was lift off and it would instantly correct. I found it to be a very forgiving platform and it was just fun. You know, it was, it was just good fun. I can tell you though, Sammy, what wasn't fun about all of that drifting around. Uh, Fuel economy? No. I don't no, know. What to, kind of question would that be? Trying to turn off the stability control system. Oh, I got you. For the so Type S. It's not just a button somewhere? Oh, there is a button on the dash. Excellent. But get this. It doesn't turn off the stability control or the traction what it, control. What does it do? It turns on a light on the dash that tells you the traction control is off. Oh, the fake traction control it's, off it's button. It's a complete fake out. So if you turn that button off... And then you hit a snowy patch and spin the wheels, the traction control turns itself on. Oh, that's helpful. So I don't understand why that exists, but if you want to turn off the traction control in uh, either a Civic Si, Type R, or Type S, you have to do this thing where, and here's the full sequence. I hope you have your notepad out because this is, it's not something you're going to remember. You have to have your foot on the brake. You have to turn the traction control off and then on again. Then you have to turn on, sorry, <clears throat> you have to turn on the, I'm, I'm going to start again because I'm so confused. <laughs> okay. Parking brake is on. Your foot yeah. is on the brake. You um, turn the traction control off. You turn it back on. Then you remove the parking brake with your foot still on the brake. You turn the traction control off. You turn it on again. Then you turn the parking brake back on, take your foot off of the brake turn the traction control off, then turn it on again. But that final time you turn it on, it actually doesn't turn on. It lights up another thing on the dash on the other side that says VSA, which I assume is vehicle stability assist. And now it's off and it never turns back on again until you do an ignition cycle. So Konami code, um, Konami code with a break, with a break and a hand pedal. And some buttons, yeah. Is that not the most ridiculous sequence of events? Like, this isn't this isn't like the GTR's secret launch control that when it debuted like 15 years ago. This is just an Integra Type S turning off the traction control. Now, I understand that this is not the only car that has this. As far as I understand, the the I have a Scion FRS a, a, in, in my garage. It, it also has a pedal dance that you have to do within 30 seconds of starting up the car. Does that little it, timer come on the gauge cluster and like flash at you when it gets and, to 10? And the car has to be warmed up as far as I understand. So you have to warm the car off, turn it off and warm the car up, turn it off and then do it. And it's pull the handbrake three times and then hold it on the third, press the brake pedal three times, hold it on the third, pull the handbrake three more times, hold it on the third, press the brake pedal two times, and then the lights turn off. 
So the only thing I can figure is there's some lawyers out there whose only job is to figure out what sequence of interactions with the car is so complex it could never like be reproduced by accident in the wild. That's right. Like you can never just be driving down the road and all of a sudden you start yanking the parking brake and hitting the hitting the handbrake and all sorts of stuff going and then bam, no stability control, bam, billion dollar lawsuit against Toyota. <laughs> <laughs> I love pedal dances. I think they're the funniest thing and, in and, our industry. Actually, I'm gonna. I need to keep this to in my back pocket for a fun story eventually. Ugh. I love it. Secret codes. When I was a kid, one of the coolest. Come on, when you'd play video games, when you found a code or you learned about a code from a kid at school or the 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 magazine you picked up at the library, it was the funniest thing to do. Come on. Yeah. Except- Ninety nine lives in a video game. It was the best. Except, you know, in a video game, the stakes are a lot lower. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Like, I'm not going to fly into a ditch. <laughs> well, keep the cheat codes on, then. Or yeah, off. what I need is a Game Genie for my car. And I just, I plug the Game Genie into the USB port. And I enter in an even more complex code <laughs> using my phone over Bluetooth. But you got big head mode. <laughs> what, I, what I would like to, I, I wonder if there's people who have cracked the ECU for Honda and I can just you know, reprogram all of that shenanigan into the single button push, which would seem mm-hmm. to be logical. I love hearing about those two, the ECU, like sort of um, rewi- not rewiring, but like the hacks. And I've seen these yeah. other people who have added like launch control features to the, like the FRS and you would use the, the cruise control stock to like change what RPM you want the launch control to hold. Yeah, remember, it's so cool. Remember in the first <laughs> Fast and the Furious movie when they were doing that race at the beginning and like Vin Diesel pushes that button and like the lighter pops out and he pushes another button and it turns on his like uh, his nitrous system. Yeah. That's what I'm that's talking That's what we about. need. So we need for, more, more of this. For my Cadillac, it has a T56 manual transmission and uh, a lot of cars that were built in the 2000s and some of the 90s cars they, with that transmission, had a one one four gear lockout, so you couldn't shift from first oh, to yeah. second unless oh, you were. Oh, this was so ridiculous! I remember this. So you had to be above a certain RPM if you wanted to go to first to second, because then it knew you were really doing performance driving. But everywhere else, in order for it to meet um, EPA fuel economy regs and emission standards, they had to just skip shift to fourth gear. It below. was so annoying. I remember this so yeah, much. Corvettes it, it was used just to like, do it. I don't know if I don't Vipers. know if it was supposed to be. I don't know if it was supposed to be like gently guiding you into fourth, but it never felt like no, that. No, well, right? there's nothing gentle about the T56. <laughs> that is a bear of a transmission that is difficult to use at the best of times. So on my car, fortunately, there's an easy way to to get around it. And all you have to do is like replace a solenoid on one side of the tra- – there's, there's two connections, one on each side of the transmission – and one of them is is specifically for the skip shift. And if you put a solenoid or a resistor in there, I I can't remember exactly um, what I did, but it it fools the transmission into thinking you're always above that RPM, <laughs> so it never asks you to skip shift. But the problem is, there are, I mentioned there were two of these um, solenoids, right? If you put the the resistor on the other side, what you're doing is disabling the rear gear lockout. So you're not you no longer have a reverse lockout while you're traveling oh, forward. No. So if you mix oh, up, wait, that, what? If you mix up, which you know how when you're driving in a transmission, yeah, you have to push, yeah. you have to push down to get to reverse. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you mess with the solenoid, you don't anymore. You can just go <laughs> fifth, just fifth gear, reverse in. gear. <laughs> you can just grab it like at, at full speed. So if you mess up the side you're installing your solenoid on, or your resistor on the solenoid, you can end up with no reverse lockout. And a really screw yourself soon, And then soon, no transmission. And they look identical. <laughs> they look, there's no visual difference between them. Interesting. Yeah. How does this relate to the Integra that we're talking because about again? We were talking oh, about yeah, pedal dance. codes. So you didn't like doing that. How no. many times did you turn on the pedal dance? Every just single once time. Or tw- no, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> did you just have a sticky note on the dash? Or you're like, the, no, well, I went have- to, I, I did an intense YouTube training regimen. <laughs> And uh, there's a dream portion where I just put my phone underneath my pillow at night and I let the uh, I let the, the the random dude that I'm so grateful to for explaining because there was another person who had a video where they tried to explain it. But the video like they had, I guess, a roll bar camera or something. So all I could see was like the center console and their hand touching the the um, 
the uh, parking brake button. Oh, the brake. I couldn't yeah. see anything else they were doing. The guy's video that was useful was the guy who actually, you know, moved the camera to show where his hands were going. And his what his feet, feet were, were yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, come on, man. Just every video should be like that. Um, but I, I was the preamble though. That's my favorite thing. Is it like a recipe? Like no, no preamble. Like- <laughs> I didn't have to hear about like the artisanal. His grandmother's artisanal um, uh, traction control deactivation code. It was great. She's like when she came across the plains in 1835, she yeah. deactivated the ox, the ox traction control by yeah. spearing them in the side. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it was it was very to the point, which I appreciated. Excellent. But getting back to how the car drives, um, it's predictable. It's forgiving. It's not as stiff as the Type R from what I've been told. A little bit softer. And I, I just had fun with it. I, I'm, I'm not saying I would buy it because I'm not a front-wheel drive performance person. But if mm-hmm. you are, this car is quite compelling. And it's very easy while you're driving it in certain circumstances to forget that it is front-wheel drive. Okay. Uh, where That's I noticed, pretty cool. That's actually a, a huge compliment for this vehicle. Yeah. Where I noticed it the most is in low traction conditions, if you know you have the stability control off and you hammer the throttle, it will the, the, the limited slip will pull you to the outside of a corner, uh, which is just how it works. So yeah. that's something that it's, in, instead of kicking the rear out, it's going to pull the front end. Uh, that, again, just pull off the accelerator and it instantly corrects. But, you know, you, you can't disguise aspects of the weight transfer and how physics works. Uh, circling back to my is $50,000, you know, a $6,000 premium over the Type R worth it? <sighs> this is a lot of money to pay for this class of car. Yeah. I feel like there's almost no badge recognition for Acura. Yeah. And I feel like the Integra name means a lot to a very small group of people who are passionate about the brand. And if that's you, then I think you might be okay with paying that much more than the Type R. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't have as much of a boy racer look as the Civic does. Yeah, it's, which has this like really bolt-on wing kind of look. Yeah, you can get, there's an extended carbon fiber wing, I think, that's like a dealer add-on you can get for the car. It's like 950 bucks or something. Uh, Must you be real carbon fiber. It doesn't look... It doesn't look like a standard Integra, <laughs> but it doesn't look super wild. I mean, the new Type R is less wild than it used to be. Yeah. But it, it will fly under the radar. I had it. My car was painted black, and it's it's quite modest. Um, you could easily miss it if you don't know what you're looking for. Um, I I agree with most of what you said. I actually do think that for the right person, and I also think that the right person is a little bit more common than you think it is. It's somebody who um, is totally into the into the Honda and uh, the Honda ethos, like the myth of the, the Honda ethos. And, Did you just say that? Yeah. I think there's like really hungry fanboys who love the that red and R fan, and fangirls. Uh, yes, that uh, red R and that red Honda badge, um, and they probably love that stuff. And then the the next step for them is the Integra. I think that even adds a little bit more specialness because it's maybe. I mean, it'd be even cooler if these cars were kind of limited, but I don't think they are. Um, but I think that would add like more brand rep to the right people. It's kind of like when you pass an Alpina. On the road? You know what I mean? No, but I feel like Alpina is like, that's some serious... Obscurity? That is an obscure... Like, I, you have to be not just a BMW fan, but like a BMW performance fan. And even then, like, you might not know what that means. Like, the badge is... The badge itself is kind of mysterious looking. That's what I like about it. That's what I think. I, I think that's, to me, what the Integra Type R... Uh, type S feels like it's like when you see a guy in an alpina you got this like head nod like all right you got the crazy no, no one in an alpina one. ever makes eye contact with anyone else <laughs> outside true. of the alpina it just does not happen <laughs> i've i've had that happen okay um, um you, you, you were saying uh you were, you were talking about how you think that this is you know for integra fans i i will go out of my way to say i think this is the only interesting car to drive that acura currently makes yeah, sure, of course. Um, I mean, there are other Type S products in their lineup, but first of all, they're not none manual. None of them come even close to being engaging at the level of this Integra. Yeah. And I think that it's actually a pretty great that their most affordable performance car is by far their best. This car is way better than the NSX. No question. Oh, just, come on now. Just in terms of engaging me as a driver and making me interested, the NSX is extremely fast, but it's like a video game in a way that few other cars are. 
and it's more of a curated speed experience than an actual driving experience. Uh, the Type S is none of that. It is a car that I think has a personality. And I think this is something that's been missing from Acura's lineup for, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I still, I have a bit of, not like love for the NSX. I think it's, a, it, a lot of people hate the poor NSX and I don't, I don't, I don't like hate that. it. I just have no interest in driving it. Um, I just went to the website. There is no more NSX on the on right. their website, All so right. I think so we're we done go. with that. Huh? There we go. It is now officially. You can can you agree with me that it is officially the most interesting? Acura? Yeah, I agree with you definitely. Okay. And I and I agree with you mainly because like the other products, I think we've discussed this before. At 355 horsepower from a Turbo Six, um, they've limited themselves at what a Type S can be, and it just doesn't feel. Interesting. That's the result. One last thing I wanted to point out. You were talking about how you weren't sure if this was a limited production vehicle. I don't think it is, but I will. I I, I can say that it's North America only. It is North North America only. Yes. Interesting. So I wonder why they made that happen. Well, I mean, does Acura operate in Japan? I can't remember. I don't think so. So, uh, and and I don't know if there's enough. I don't think it's an Acura. It's in Europe either. I mean, the brand might be, but I don't know if uh, if type. I mean, I know Type S definitely isn't. No, I don't think so at all. Um, all right, cool. Um, anything else you want to talk about with the Type S this week? No, that's that's kind of gets it all off my chest. Uh, it it was nice. It was a nice palate cleanser. It was nice to you know to drive a car first of all, <laughs> yeah. which is rare enough these days. Everything is an SUV, and to drive a car in the winter. Um, I a know I just car in the winter. Yeah, I know I just drove like a Corolla hybrid, <laughs> Corolla all wheel drive hybrid, and I know like how can you possibly come down from that high? But I feel like the 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 Type S really kind of mellowed me out. Now, this week we have a very special guest. Uh, I'd like to introduce Tom Chep from uh, Arc Motors, who uh, who handles all things engineering at Arc Motors. Now, um, if you haven't heard of Arc, that's okay. They're a, uh, a electric startup that is working on uh, resto-modding a bunch of cool classic cars. Now, according to uh, the information that I found, Arc Motors starts the rest of mods at around 75,000, which is actually kind of approachable. Um, it's definitely more affordable than some of the other the other guys that I've heard out there, like uh, Lunas and uh, and uh, ooh, I've got to remember the other ones. Well, some too. of the factory programs, Sammy, like from Jaguar oh, yeah. and 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 other uh, similar type of classic to EV conversion companies, it, it can get quite expensive. So, welcome, Tom. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, Ben, why don't you uh, start us off with a couple of, uh, you know, this is all about uh, some older vehicles and uh, the vehicle that ARC tends to showcase is this really neat um, Bronco. And I think that's what really caught Ben's attention. And he was like, we got to talk to these people. Right, Ben? Yeah, I, I, I guess my first question would be, what what was the impetus for starting ARC and why specifically classic vehicles? And Kind of a follow-up to that. When you say classic vehicles, do you mean all classics? Or are you mostly focused on trucks and SUVs like the Bronco that, that's kind of front and center on the website? Yeah, so uh, great question. Um, so the the Bronco came about um, because, as you probably know, my sister started this company. Um, and during the pandemic, she got – well, she was always into classic cars. But that's, during that, the pandemic, that's Sloan Paul, your sister? Yes, yes, yeah. Um so during the pandemic, she got really into classic cars, specifically the Bronco, and she ended up buying four completely rusted out, beaten, abandoned Broncos <laughs> from around Canada and the United States. Um, and she went through the process of restoring the first one. I believe it was a 69 Bronco. She got it fully restored, um, new everything, new engine, um, very beautiful. Um, actually just sold it. Actually just auctioned it at Mecham for 200 grand. So made good money. Nice. Um, but she had it fully restored. It was when it was finished, she brought it to her home in Toronto, downtown Toronto, um, and was driving it around and, and quickly realized, um, they're kind of hard to drive and they're incredibly loud <laughs> and you don't want to be anywhere near, uh, the tailpipe when she was running it. And like people were literally coming up to her and being like, your car is very loud, it's just in general public. <laughs> and it's and it doesn't have a roof, right? So people, I don't know yeah. why, but when you're in a convertible, people feel so much more entitled to just approach you on the street yeah. and tell yeah. you whatever's on their mind about your vehicle. 
yeah, your car's loud and it stinks like out of, <laughs> on the street corner. Um, so she went, okay. Uh, and she, she drives an EV, uh, a Hyundai GV60, uh, or a Genesis GV60. And she went, okay, well, can I, in my next restoration, can we go electric? Um, and she started researching and quickly found that it wasn't easy. There wasn't really anyone doing it. The ones that were doing it had, you know, five-year wait lists. Um, and like, as you kind of mentioned, very, very expensive. Um, so then she called me up. And at the time, I was working at Westinghouse um, in, in the nuclear group developing microreactor technology. <laughs> so, so right away, she was, she was going gunning for a nuclear-powered Bronco, which would be better smelling and maybe quieter <laughs> than the factory Ford yeah. configuration. Yeah, first question was, hey, can you solve fusion? And we'll... <laughs> Mr. Fusion, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, she just called me because of my engineering background because I'm an electrical engineer. And she just went, hey, can we electrify uh, my next Bronco? And I said, yeah, probably. <laughs> wow, that's a perfect answer. That's a great, honestly, that's really supportive of your sister because. I know, I'm trying to think of how I would react to my sister asking me for anything these days. <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, we'll talk later. That's what I would say. <laughs> now, so the caveat, it wasn't like, yeah, probably uh, I'll do it. It was, I mean, if you'd spend enough money and go research, you probably can. Ah, okay, I got you. Right. Right. Um, but she kind of petitioned me and went, well, can you do it? Can we, and then even in the next idea, which from the early childhood memories, she always, she's the entrepreneur, entrepreneur spirit of the family. She's constantly asking me if I want to do a business with her. And I would always say no, because I would just respond like, I have no idea how to run a restaurant. Don't ask me to start a business with you. Uh, but then it became, can we electrify this? And then next question, of course, was, can we create a business out of this? Right. Um, so which which came first? Did you guys actually do a prototype before you decided to start the business? Or did you kind of do them simultaneously? Uh, very simultaneously. Um, I approached it cautiously. Um, I spent nearly two years in my evenings and weekends it was like a year and a half of just research, okay. um, just kind of understanding what was out there, what it was involved with electrification, um, was it even safe, et cetera, like what parts were available, what could you get to do this, how do you do it? Um, and then I kind of commonized that into like a kind of a master plan um, and a list of parts. Um, at the same time, she's saying like, we're going to make a business, but I, at first, I'm like, well, let's figure out if this is even possible first. Yeah. Um, so then I and then pulled the trigger, ordered a lot of very expensive parts, um, <laughs> got a very big table, um, put it all there. Um, and with, in six months of, you know, evening and weekend part time stuff, kind of assembled it all together and did our first bench test. Uh, one of our first videos of the company is is me starting up and spinning the motors for the first time, which was exciting. Um, and then when we kind of determined that she went full business mode and, you know, got some, got some interest churned up and some, uh, funding and investments lined up. Uh, and then I kind of, that's what kind of when I quit my job, uh, came here full time and then spent two months building it into the Bronco at that point had been fully restored. Um, so sort of the shell of it was restored for us. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then it lined up. And then and then immediately, once I finished it in November, we launched the company. And then all the press went out and kind of, that's how you guys kind of found us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we were contacted by uh, one of your representatives and it immediately caught my eye. I mean, the, the car looks sharp and the Bronco is an interesting choice uh, for this. I, I, it, I assume that having an SUV like the first generation Bronco, it kind of gave you enough space to not so much fit the motors, but fit the, the battery packs battery, and yeah. the, yep. the, the cabling and everything that was needed. Uh, when I, I'm curious as to how you determined which parts to go with, like is everything off the shelf? And when I say off the shelf, does that also include programming and management of the power or was there stuff that maybe no one had really thought of for this particular application that you kind of had to figure out on your own? 
these, these are all really good questions and the things we went through. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was exactly that. Yeah. So the Bronco allowed us the space. That's why we kind of went with it first because, yeah, as you know, batteries are very big and very heavy. Um, and we kind of we stuffed 15 batteries into this Bronco, which is one less than the Model S, which is actually what the batteries come from. Okay. Um, and it was, as you can ask, it was, it was that year and a half spent was really finding the parts and finding what would work. Um, as you as you mentioned, it it's somewhat off the shelf. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's it's like a mixture of off the shelf stuff that's not really produced in scale um, with really low scale quantity, almost handmade components oh, wow. to, to manage the systems like the, like the BMS, the battery management system, um, like the inverter is a hacked um, inverter from Italy that controls the motor. Um, at the time that we were making this thing, that's really what was available on the market. Um, and the solving it was making them all integrate together to actually function to, to get all the pieces working to actually drive it and charge it and and control things like the HVAC, which is very difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah. But since since we did it, um, you know, maybe a year ago, the industry's really kind of picked up speed and grown and, and a lot more products have come out into the market. Um by some big names that produce at scale. So it's a trend that's moving forward and upward, which is really great for us because um, it's not ideal to be hacking together like handmade boards to for a customer's vehicle. I, you know I'm sure I mean? that makes it really hard to not just scale for, for more customers, but also support them over time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You need, you need to give confidence to the customer that what they're paying for is, is going to be supported by, you know, not just your individual shop, but the companies producing the components um, for, you know, like software and firmware and all those things. Now, was there any, pre- along those lines, when you first started, was the, did you feel any pressure to maybe try to adapt an existing driveline? Like, I know that there are people out there who, not, not so much um, as an entrepreneurial kind of thing, but on a one-off scale, have been adapting Tesla platforms to different body shapes and sizes. And did you look at any off-the-shelf platforms that were out there, either from General Motors or Tesla or, or maybe even other companies, to try and decide if that would maybe be favorable? Yeah, yeah all those options were on the table. We, I initially looked at like the Ford Crate electric motor. Okay. Um, but there was next to no information or documentation on it of how to even control the thing. So that's it's it's amazing that you bring that up yeah. because that product and also the E-Crate motors that I think General Motors put out, they got yeah. a lot of press when they first arrived, but then they almost yeah. entirely vanished from the market. Exactly, right? Because try to find someone who actually went down the road of trying to use one mm. and you won't find many because... It just dead ends almost. I feel like uh, I, I read something where I, w- I want to say it was Hot Rod Magazine. They have a something called Project X, which I think is like a 55 or 57 Chevrolet they've been updating for decades. And they just, yeah. they've been doing different drivetrains over that time. And they did a drop-in um, EV drivetrain. And their entire advice after was to just not do it because they didn't feel <laughs> that for for an enthusiast that the options were out there for someone to do in their own garage and what they ended up with was not what they what not what they thought they would get in terms of range and power and it was so complicated to control yeah yeah and you're running in that well yeah not that long ago that's that's exactly kind of what it was um so fortunately there's there's companies emerging that are kind of changing that and making it better and easier for even enthusiasts to do it um, with the support. It's still, if you talk to anyone in this industry, we're still very early days. So it's still, while technology's improved and support's improved, the costs are still kind of really high because it's not at scale. Uh, and that's one of the challenges we were, we're running into. What are the, um, what are the thoughts that I've been, been hearing about is that it's less like the old school um sort of like cobbling together a vehicle and it's more like it feels like it's more like hacking like a very like computer oriented um you know get your get your laptops out and figure out how to how to control this item and that yep yep um because 
I have a degree or a background in electrical engineering and a lot of experience doing industrial controls um, and automation, mm -hmm. I was able to sort out the integration needed for the vehicle and kind of, as you mentioned, like hack together um, like signaling components to like speak to each other and make it work. That's obviously not something that's approachable to the general public. Um, right. But, and it's a whole different like yeah. uh, set of skills compared to the old kind of restore like resto shops, right? Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Uh, um, and I think it, it just opens up the the idea of, you know, enthusiasts to a whole new group of people too, right? Yeah, a lot more tech-minded people. Again, but like, you know, the younger generation now take your programming courses in school now, right? Or is Exactly. Uh, speaking of technical, you know, sort of details, can you can you give us a few technical details about this uh, EV um, Bronco? Yeah, like like the performance specs, or just like the yeah, yeah. sure. Give me. So you mentioned that it's got um, the a, a similar battery to the or the Tesla battery, um, just one less cell. You said, or one less battery cell than than the yeah, standard I'm Model sure. S. Yeah. yeah. Um. So how many kilowatts? Uh, kilowatt hours is that? So yeah, so the Bronco, our Bronco has 15 modules, yep. uh, works out to 75 kilowatt hours. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is a lot. Um, if you know EVs, that is a lot because yeah. it's in, it's in a Bronco, which is quite heavy. And I describe it to people as a Kleenex box on wheels. Yeah. Not, <laughs> no aerodynamics and the thing, uh, and giant like rock climbing tires. So I oh yeah give it, we give it an estimated like 300 kilometers of range, uh, but I feel like that's enough for anyone driving this vehicle. They're not going to go 300 kilometers in one shot. And it's pretty competitive when you're. I mean, there's plenty of brand new EVs out there that are at that level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With more batteries, too, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, with more batteries. <laughs> and how yeah. much? How much horsepower? Roughly, uh, is it a dual motor setup? I noticed that it has the the front differential um, in the picture, so I was curious about the four wheel drive system. Yeah, so it is <clears throat> it is two motors, but only because one motor at the time for the motors that we could get it wasn't enough horsepower. Ah, okay. I wanted to keep it four wheel drive, so we added in the second motor um, in series. Um, which comes out out of it's so it's two motors into a it's called the torque box which is like an EV's transmission it's a single gear um and then that goes right into the transfer case which is you know like in this case we upgraded the transfer case to an Atlas divorce transfer case okay um but you could use like on any other classic vehicle if you had it for restored and it had the original transfer case you could tie right into the original transfer case and then it just drives like the front and rear diffs uh, as normal and i another thing i was curious about is the system that you've installed in this bronco is this something yeah. that's kind of like a a kit that you could take and put into almost any classic vehicle or what kind of degree of re-engineering is required for customers to show up like let's say i showed up with my jeep grand wagoneer and i was like i i would like to do the same thing that you did with this ford uh, is, yeah. it, is it just a question of battery placement or is there more to it than that when you're trying to come up with a new solution for a new vehicle um it's pretty much that we tried to keep it standardized enough um so that we could adapt nearly in a vehicle uh, as you as you mentioned there it's really the battery and the placement, like how many batteries can we put in and where can we put them, um, trying to keep the original weight distribution. Um, for the Bronco, we put pretty much all the batteries in the front where the engine was, and it weighed out to be about the same. Okay. Um, because the electric motors are small enough, they almost always fit in the transmission tunnel. Uh, um, so that all works out. Um, but yeah, if you, if you brought a vehicle with us, it'd be be very similar um the components are almost always improving uh, with products coming to market nearly you know every other week or so so in this vehicle in the bronco we kept it at like a 120 volt system because um, that's what the motors were operating at but because you're at that voltage you can't have dc fast charge so it takes like 12 hours to charge this thing okay in, in the new motor offerings that have come out, you know, in the past year or so, um, you can operate at 400 to even 800 volts. Uh, in a smaller 
package with like quadruple the horsepower um, and that unlocks DC fast charging as well. So you can even have less batteries and, and reduce the weight, which then of course improves your mileage. So it's pretty amazing. I mean, it, you start to talk about a vehicle that goes from something that you would drive occasionally, like I think a lot of people do with classic cars, to something that yeah. could, in theory, be a daily driver. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's really opened up uh, the technology that's happening recently, so that we can now offer customers that want to daily drive their classic vehicles. Like we have a customer um, who was in love with their vehicle but didn't couldn't maintain the engine mm. and wanted to drive it daily. Um, we can now offer that to her because um, she's she's never going to drive it more than you know like the two hundred or so kilometers of range it has, um, and it'll charge at home overnight easily or if she goes to like a DC fast charger within 30 minutes right and she's up again right it, it, this is something i think about a lot we were talking before we started recording but i i think a lot about the idea of keeping my own jeep going into the future and here in quebec there's a lot of mandates regarding the use of evs and mm. i don't know exactly when internal combustion engines might be outlawed or or made much more expensive to register, but I'd like mm. to continue to drive my Jeep past that point. And I've looked at these EV conversions as a way to do that because, you know, like the Bronco, I've got the space to put batteries and um, mm. it just seems like the natural evolution for classic cars. And it's strange because I have another classic car, my, my Datsun Z that, that I drive on the track and I don't have any interest at all in converting that <laughs> yeah. to electric. It's 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 almost like the use case is what's driving my interest in what the drivetrain will look like. Yeah, and that's and that's totally fair. Um, and there's a lot of resistance uh, for the other part that wants to keep it like I see. But I, the way I approach it is this is this is nothing more than an alternative. That didn't exist not that long ago. Yeah, you're not the you're not the battery police. You're not going to someone's house and forcing them to <laughs> yeah. convert to, to EV. That's I, it's an attitude that no, it's funny, but I think that some people do feel that way. They they feel like there's going to be some kind of regime change and they won't have a choice, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we received like actual curses from people. Uh, <laughs> That's like wild. written out wow. like curses because they, they're they're treating it like. We're, we're forcing people, like we're shoving down their throats to go EV. We're, we're not, we're not. We're just making it so that there's an option. I mean, yeah. the best, in my opinion, the best thing you can do with an older car is drive it. And if the yes. way to drive it is like your friend you were talking about who was unable to keep the vehicle in, in driving shape using the gas engine, is just too hard to maintain. And I totally get that because I have unfortunately owned those vehicles too. Um, What's the what's the alternative? It goes to a scrapyard or it goes to a museum, and in either case, no one's going to see it. No one's going to enjoy it at the same way they yeah. would as if it was rolling by on the street, right? Yeah, no one's going to love it. it. Just no one's going to get that feeling when it comes by and they see it and they go, "Wow, what what is that?" And, yeah, or sitting in it and cruising along, uh, just with the memories of, of the vehicle itself, right? Yeah, uh, like we have we have another customer who <clears throat> has like an Aston Martin that they absolutely love, but it has to be driven and maintained regularly. And he just doesn't, he, he maybe drives it. He was saying like once, once every six months, maybe even once a year. And by that point he has to get the engine overhauled and maintained before he can do it again. Yeah. Man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this one, uh, Tom, there's one last thing I want to talk to you about. Um, I, I, I can't help when I see a company like yours. And when I see, when we talk about how, you know, the technology for electric vehicles is moving so quickly and not just moving quickly, but improving on a regular basis and becoming easier to use and easier to put together. I can't help but think back to kind of the earlier times in the automotive industry, like, you know, the 19, the early 1900s, maybe like yeah. 1900 to 1930, where you had this separation of companies that built cars and companies that built coaches. And by coaches, I mean like bodywork for those cars. And you, yeah. would, you would end up with platforms that would look radically different based on the, the customer's tastes, but really mechanically underneath, they were all pretty similar. Um, and there was this, it was a meeting of these two industries. And now do you think that we might be on the verge of offering 
that kind of customization um, to individuals where they can not have to worry so much about the the components of the vehicle that are making it drive down the road and they can focus more on you know finding a clean shell and uh, personalizing the vehicle to their taste and knowing that they can rely on this industry that's going to provide them with a, 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 an electrical platform that just works yeah I think we're I think we're quickly approaching that there's companies you know that we're working with that are actively developing platforms and only the platforms they have zero interest in making an actual car it's, it's what they've told me several times mm. uh, and what with the emergence of that technology why couldn't there be like like a customizable thing to to fit whatever suited the the customer's taste right like you don't the current model is you you pick out a brand and you pick out a model and you go that's what i'm getting i guess it's not, not really <laughs> yeah. customizable beyond that right it's it's fa- it's fascinating. It makes me think of uh, about ten years ago when the Rally Fighter first came to to market, which was like a three D printed off road racer that people could put together themselves, and it, it was a, a bit ahead of its time in the sense that you still required a fair degree of mechanical knowledge to assemble that. But the idea of you know people doing their own coach work and then bringing that to an established platform, even if it's not a classic body, but putting that on something uh, where someone's worked out all the electrical bugs and made a drivable platform. That's, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. If like if the make like, the ones we're working with, they work out all the vehicle dynamics and all of the engineering so that you can just put whatever body you want on it and it's totally safe. So why wouldn't people start going that route? I think. Um, but again, it's, it's just more offerings to the public, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's just the tip, right? Like it just feels like we're 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 just getting started now, right? Yeah, yeah, That's we're crazy. just getting started, and if we can reduce, if we can make it more, like pe- more people adopt it, and we make it um, at greater scale, and the cost comes down significantly, um, it's far more accessible to everyone, um, which is great. Tom, if people wanted to find out more about Arc Motor, um, what's the best way to for them to do that? I usually just tell people go go straight to our website, arcmotors.com, uh, and reach out to us or browse what we have to offer and, and reach out to us. We have as soon as people reach out to us through the website, we immediately jump on conversations and phone calls with them and and kind of see what's in their head and what they want to do and work with them because there's a lot there's a lot you can do with a number of different uh, performance specs and models and drive range. It's 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 wide open. It just it's intimidating, I think, <laughs> uh, to a lot of people. So we hope to we hope to break that down with you know plain and simple conversation and and friendliness. Well, it's I- not like you don't have to be like super technical to just make this happen. I, you're, I I think that's really interesting for you to say though that it's intimidating to start with, and you can you can help them uh, figure out what's the next step. Yeah, like there's a lot of people just intimidated with just charging, right? And and. <laughs> range anxiety that makes them not want to go EV at all, which I'm sure you've chatted with people like that. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. This has been great. And I I loved hearing about arc motors and and what you guys are doing. And I'm definitely going to follow you because, you know, I don't know how many years it's going to be, but eventually I'm going to need to do the same thing with my own cars. (laughs) Well, I hope, I hope you reach out to us when that point comes. That'll be fun to do. Well, thanks again, Tom. I really appreciate it, too. Thanks uh, for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about all these uh, these juicy details about what it's like to kind of like resto mod um, an, a, a beloved class of like a, like a Ford Bronco and whatever else is, is down the pipeline, too. I think, like you said, there's probably a lot of people who who have some uh, some choice words for you. But I think there's a lot of people who are very <laughs> excited um, about what the possibility is in the future. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, oh, we are going to be at the... Um, Canadian Auto Show next month. If you did want to come by and check out the Bronco in person and, and chat some more, awesome. Anyone listening who wants to do it too? Uh, not just for Media Day. You guys are going to be there all show long. Yeah, the whole show. Yeah, perfect. I think we've got some uh, Toronto or GTA based listeners who would probably love to stop by. Yeah, we'd be happy to chat with them. Sammy, do you have anything else you want to talk about this week? No, I think that's all I've got. Um, what if Ben? People- 
had questions about what Tom told us about his EV uh, resto mods or about anything else that we've talked about, if they want to scold me for thinking the Integra was more interesting than the NSX, how would they be? How what's the best way for them to express their rage? Well, to express their rage, we'll take we'll take the rage for Tom. I think so. I'll I'll recommend people. Oh no, to I didn't mean rage against Tom. I meant rage oh. against my Integra opinions. Oh yes, okay. Um, or your your intentions with your uh, your Grand Wagoneer. Well, I mean, you, my intentions are my own. I, I stand on that. It's too bad. People are coming after you, Ben. <laughs> uh, head on over to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. While you're there, you will find all of our previous episodes, 349 of them, I think, at least. Wow. Um, and you can also find a way to get in touch with us through a contact form. Uh, you click on this button. It... it you fill out a form. It lands in our inbox. We usually take action on it, um, assuming it's polite and uh, and and friendly, or at least has a nice, polite and friendly uh, introduction or a greeting. Um, and then we usually talk about whatever you've got to talk about um, on the next episode, which is cool. And Sammy, uh, you've just you've just reminded me. We actually did get a question in this week that I wanted to talk about um, from Justin, who is talking, he is looking to change a lease vehicle that he's been driving. He was looking for a vehicle that's smaller than the Forester. And it's been a problem for him because he's six foot four. He's just self-described as a typical gorgeous Aussie male, which I mean, without photographic evidence, we can't confirm or deny that. But the problem he's having is not, his son is also over six feet and they cannot find a vehicle that they can sit in back to back where he's sitting in the front, his son is in the second row and it's comfortable. Sammy, you're reasonably tall. Have you run into this problem? I'm not 6'4", okay? No, Let's but you're much taller than I am. And I I have heard of some of the issues that uh, people have, especially sitting behind another tall person. I don't know if the Forester is super confident with that uh, with that task. He also has some dogs, which I think is important to mention. Yeah, the dogs, you, you need, I mean... Subarus are great with dogs, mm-hmm. and some of the comp- competitors Justin has discovered that the, the the dogs that he has just do not fit. Yeah, um, they, they they like to stand or lie down, and they just can't stand up inside the back of a medium SUV. So his question is, uh, why are new designs making vehicles smaller inside while bigger on the outside? And you end up with a wagon or a crossover or an SUV that can't really offer more cargo space than a large sedan. Oh, my God. Justin, this is happening to me every day. I can't stand this. Yeah, so Sammy, your problem has been car seats and the stuff that goes with car seats, right? Yeah, baby stuff. Listen, why are cars so big but less practical? Yeah, I don't know, man. This is nonsense. I'm I'm imagining it's because of crash test safety standards as well as fuel efficiency um, footprint standards that um, if they make their vehicle bigger are probably given a more lenient um, fuel economy standard um, or they they can pack more safety gear in the in 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 there as well there's some weird stuff too like we talked about it um, in the fall where I had a Pacifica hybrid and we were comparing it to the minivan we were comparing it to the Toyota Sienna and mm-hmm. in the Sienna you can't remove the second row of seats because Toyota has put um, an inflatable airbag inside of the seats and so yeah. there's no way to disconnect and remove them unless you take a bunch of tools out which is different from almost every other minivan out there where you can physically remove the seats and take advantage of all that space so there's there's lots of different ways that car companies hobble themselves in terms of giving you interior room it, Justin ended up back in the Forester Interesting. And, and and he's happy with the choice. But I, I share that frustration because there are times where I get into a crossover or an SUV and realistically it does not have any more cargo space than a hatchback. No, absolutely not. Um, and I think a lot of – I think I mentioned this with the um, the Impreza RS or the Impreza, the new Impreza, which features more cargo space than the, the Crosstrek that is like very similar to it. Now, of course, that means that there's no spare tire kit in that vehicle in in the Impreza. But you know, it you know, fuel like cubic feet to cubic feet. This is this has more space than it. But you sometimes know? cubic feet can be tricky too, because if that cubic feet, if that if that extra space is located underneath the load floor, right? Yeah. Because they they've been a, a tray there or something. That it's not necessarily useful because if you're loaded, you can't get to it. Yeah. And if you have a dog, like <laughs> if you have a dog, like Justin does. 
you can't put the dog in that car. That that is essentially dead cargo space. Like it's useless to you because the dog needs the cargo space to be in the same area right. as everything else. Um, if you're if you're transporting ping pong balls and you want to see how many ping pong balls you can fit in the volume of, a, of an SUV, then this is ideal. I mean, as many cubbies as you can, right? But there's two pickups that have this issue, right? Like the in bed storage in the Ridgeline and I think the Santa Cruz. If you you know, you put something in there, but then you put some like anything on, on top, top of, of that. Yeah. You're so, you're in trouble. The well, it doesn't have to be something big, like or heavy, but it's just annoying. The solution is the cargo tunnel in the Rivian R1T, which is an odd kind of <laughs> yes, human-sized cubbyhole. <laughs> they need goes, to stop showcasing that. It goes from one side to the other of the body, just ahead of the bed, and you can it, it, you can access it from either side, and you can never put anything on top of it. Right, it's always yeah. accessible. So that was their solution to that kind of lockable storage i guess you could call it yeah yeah so justin um, thanks for the question and thanks for reminding me sammy when we were talking about this i had wanted to talk about this but it um i i um it's it's something that i think about a lot because to to be fair this is something that i think this is a, a bit of a tangent but have you ever sammy you've been in older cars from the 40s and the 50s right yes yeah have you ever noticed that those cars despite being enormous on the outside are actually really small inside yes and a lot of that has to do with the body-on-frame designs of the era, or even the unibody designs. They just did not know how to maximize space. Like, I I used to own a Continental, a Lincoln Continental, from the late 60s. And that car is one of the biggest cars you could ever possibly buy. But mm-hmm. the passenger compartment is quite modest. I would say, like, a mid-sized car at best. And it's so dissonant to get inside this enormous vehicle and then not have enough room to stretch out inside. It's just so weird. And uh, the out- exterior dimensions of a vehicle they can often be completely divorced from how they feel from behind the wheel. That's right. Uh, where those, yeah, they're like, those older cars also, they, they just make me laugh too. Like huge car, small space. So funny. Yeah. It's almost like um, they're compensating for something. Oh yeah. I don't know what that means. Um, if you want to tune to us next week, what are we going to be talking about, Sammy? What are you going to be talking about? I don't know. What are we talking about, Ben? You tell me. I, I am personally going to be talking about a new Hyundai, uh, the Hyundai Tucson N-Line. Didn't you just drive that vehicle? The Tucson N-Line? No, I drove the um, other one, the Kona N-Line. The Kona N-Line. All right, so this is this is a new model for this year, I believe. And I think they've, yeah. they've gone hybrid only across the drivetrain uh, lineup. You can get a, a plug-in or the non-plug-in. I'm driving the non-plug-in. I'm um, very eager to hear your thoughts on this. So far, I've driven it a little bit so far, and... I I do have some thoughts. Uh, it's it's an interesting experience, not quite integral level interesting, but <laughs> definitely a lot of good stuff here. I think for a vehicle that had maybe fallen a little bit behind. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you about that, and uh, we'll see you all next week. All right, thank you for listening, everybody. See ya.